Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Comfy on the couch over there. Forward. How stretchy are your legs? Alright. I was gonna think if it's you good, want. No, it's good. If I can slide that in the middle of yeah, them without being weird, and right. then you can just sit back and lovely enjoy the show. It is great. So up top, Ben just mentioned something to me about the well, I think the lady who's written my favourite song of the last <laughs> ten years around the Christmas period. Santa's coming for us. Uh, can we just start this conversation off sure. with um, your Sia anecdote? My Sia anecdote. Um, way back in 1997, I'm in Japan with a band that I was in after the Almighty split up, a band called Sick, a punk band that I formed in Dublin. Three-piece band. Um, I've been to Japan many times, as the Almighty always did very well there. So we're over doing some shows. Two other guys have never been to Japan before. And we're in Tokyo for a week. And we're just having the best time ever. The shows are sold out. And... We're drinking, we're partying, and we end up meeting a couple of Aussie girls who, who are working at, as waitresses at this nightclub in Tokyo. And they're great fun. And they end up hanging out with us and partying with us all week. And we sort of see them every day. Just having a great laugh, um, you know, as you do when you're young. And uh, then this one girl says to me and the drummer in the band, she's like, I, I'm a songwriter, I write songs. And usually when people say that, 
oh yeah here we go here, yeah, yeah and you know we really like these girls and suddenly it's like oh you're going to give me something and it's you know it's you're going to exp- you know what i mean it's yeah, gonna, of course it's yeah, going to be it. weird so she hands us a cd and our drummer goes away and listens to it and says has it to me and goes have a listen to that just so you can tell you listen to it and i was like oh really so i listened to it and it's it's just okay she's not got a bad voice nothing jumped out at me didn't think the songs were particularly good we give her the cd back and of course you lie that's great it's fantastic it's really yeah, really good yeah. and then we sort of go away and we snigger and we make a, a joke going you know wow you know she's you know I'm glad she's not trying to be a musician. I mean, lovely girl. I mean, amazing, amazing girl. I couldn't say enough good things about it. There was so much good fun. It's Sia. Sia before Sia. Sia before Sia. Yeah. About a year and a half, two years later, Sia is everywhere and she Mm -hmm. blows up. And she is amazing. And fair play to her because she said, you know, she was like, "I'm, I'm just doing this. I'm going to work at my music. I'm going to go to London after Tokyo. I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to do it. And, and look at her, you know. I just think what a great story, you know. And have you seen her? So since? never employ me as your A and R guy. Right? You, I haven't got a clue. No. So did you reconnect after that? You no, know, I, I haven't. But I think Gary, the, who was the drummer at the time, still keeps in touch with her through email. Amazing. To this day, you know. So that's just an amazing story, and just shows you. Yeah. Right. And that Christmas track she released was incredible. I thought yeah, one of my favorite listen, Christmas songs of the last few years. Amazing. You know, she obviously ha- had a talent. I mean, I don't think I was ever in doubt in fairness with the CD that the girl could sing, but we were just, it was just unremarkable. It was yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. You know, didn't have that no, magic, yeah, you know, but there you go. There you go. See it to start us off. So you were born in uh, County down, right? Yeah. Um, 66, 66. Uh, tell us about that place at that time and the, the cultural landscape as a kid um, growing up there. As a kid growing up, you know, when when the troubles really started, I was three years old. Right. So all through the 70s and, and into the 80s, I moved to Scotland at the tail end of 1980. Um, that was in full swing, sadly. So I'd never known anything but that. And when you're born into something like that, you just think it's the norm. So I never remember feeling frightened. I never remember, you know, barricades, army on the streets, gunfire, bombs going off. That's just where I lived. And you just got on with it. And people did just get on with it. The people didn't make any fuss about it. And it was too much of, oh, that's just the way it is. Maybe that was a lot of the problem, you know. Um, so when I did get to move to, to Scotland. Did your parents want to move to escape that? Was that the I reason? I think that was a big part of it, yeah. Right. Although I think it's kind of funny that at that moment in time in Belfast with all the religious bigotry going on, West of Scotland wouldn't have been my first choice to, to move to to avoid religious bigotry because there's quite a lot of religious bigotry in West of Scotland, certainly with the two football teams that they have going on there. Yeah. And I remember the first day I went to school, I got asked, if, was I Protestant or Catholic? And I was just like, man, I can't should, escape. I can't escape this. Were you your know. parents religious? Um, yeah, my mum was, 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 is very religious. Not so much my dad, but my mum was very religious, you know. Um, Sunday, she was a Sunday school teacher, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, you know, but uh, good memories, you know, I don't, I don't remember having a, a, a bad childhood at all. And I mean, and again, unremarkable when I was just like a normal kid, I was, I was a bit of a daydreamer, um, didn't particularly like school. Um, you know, certainly I remember hearing bombs going off, I remember seeing riots and I remember just looking at them and not feeling any fear or, or just, that's just what happens in Belfast, you know, sadly. I spoke to Dom Jolly, the comedian, for this podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he grew up in Lebanon, right. which is obviously, you know, a yeah. massive conflict zone at yeah. that time as well. Yeah. 
And he says it certainly like creates a unique psychological makeup within yourself that chaos doesn't frighten you. No, it didn't hit me until I was in my 20s and I remember being somewhere and suddenly just going, shit, that was a bomb that went off across the street. I could have been killed, you know, and it, they, and then for having almost like an anxiety attack about it because I just never really thought about it. And suddenly I was like, wow, well, that, that was a dead guy on the road that we had to go around on the way to school that morning. You know, that was a, you know, armored car that was driving down our street. It's suddenly you're like, you know, I've never been overwhelmed by it. And then I sort of thought well, that was just bizarre. You know, and I think it took me to get out of that situation and, and travel the world for a bit and see relatively normal other cultures, if that exists. Mm. Um, but see that, you know, we, there wasn't a McDonald's in Belfast in 1994. I mean, we had nothing. Did you bands know? come through? Very rarely. I mean, obviously you had the Irish bands playing like, you know, Lizzie, Rudy and Rudy, Stiffle Stiffle Fingers, Fingers yeah. and Rory Gallagher and, and, and Horselips and all those great bands because they were from there. So there was no fear. But very rarely would you get a big band. So what you would happen, you would get kids that would go and see Stuff Little Fingers one week, we would go, go and see Fleetwood Mac the next week just because a big band is in town. Didn't and when, when the gigs are happening, are the political and religious differences set aside yeah. for the night? Out the window. Um, you know, it's almost like an unwritten rule that that's left behind and it's we're all one, we're all unified by the music. And uh, I bet that creates in you then quite a deep, appreciation and fascination with music because that seems to be the only thing without boundaries or borders yeah was that the case for you absolutely it was it was a sanctuary as it were that you could go there and and you could leave all that behind it didn't matter what part of the town you came from what church you went to you know that was it didn't matter a fuck and and the kids didn't want to be reminded of that and certainly when any bands would come over and start trying to trying to preach about it that didn't go down very well with with because the kids are like we don't want to hear about it. We know. We're yeah, living this yeah, every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. This is our one chance for two hours to forget about this bullshit, you know? Um, and, you know, that's still the case today in Belfast. I know we have the peace process, but obviously there's certain areas that you, you still would, wouldn't, wouldn't go into if you're from, you know, if you're one religion or the other. But I think with music, that's never been an issue, and rightly so. Were you a punk rock kid? Was that the music of choice for you? I was. When you were I was a bit. Up? I was a bit too reserved and too daydreamer to be to be the full on punk rock kid till I was maybe older in my teens, seventeen, eighteen, and I sort of had the Mohican. But I was sort of thirteen, fourteen. I wasn't really sure what it was because I loved punk and I loved ska and I loved heavy rock. So I kept sort of flitting between the three. Yeah. You know. I, I love really the t-shirt, which, by the way. Thank you. That's one of the best tunes. I love absolutely, it. Absolutely. I mean, that's my favorite. Dd Ramone for the people listening. Poison right. Heart. Yeah, I actually got this, um, where Didi's buried is, is a, a cemetery in LA called Hollywood Forever. I've been there. Yeah, and Didi and I went there, there shortly after Chris Cornell and passed he, away and Chris his grave was, was freshly laid. Yeah. So they have a Day of the Dead festival um, every year there, you know, which is the Mexican festival, which is great. And everybody dresses up and, you know, there's thousands of people go. And we went this year and uh, where Didi's buried, they had a huge... D.D. Ramon merch booth set up and I thought I gotta get a t-shirt and it's kind of funny because um, isn't your new guitarist his the, his old guitarist his old guitar player yeah he's called Creepy Chris Creepy back Chris. then right yeah. has he got some stories that he's told you about D.D. Yeah, I he bet does, he's he got does some the, gold he does the best D.D. Ramon impersonation <laughs> ever as well he's got that down I think he had a really great time to him with D.D. I think it was pretty eventful pretty crazy you know I'll bet I read uh, Marky Ramon's book um, right. and that, yeah. the chaos yeah. in that band like I never realised how fractured they were like obviously Joey had his severe compulsive thing going on obviously Johnny was Johnny 
You had Marky, who was just a full-blown alcoholic. Yeah. Didi was a junkie. Yeah. It's amazing that they kind of stayed together for, for as so long, long as they did. And they, you know, obviously Johnny and Joey not, not speaking because of the, the girlfriend. Yes, him. just did it for... I know, and, and they toured. They never really took... I don't think they ever took a tour bus out once. It was all done in a van and a truck. So it's like a microcosm of pressure, I isn't it? I can't imagine the, the tension must have been on barrel. But we, um, the Almighty, we supported the Ramones. Really? One yeah. of the many. One so of I, our first ever tour. I want to get to some of the incredible bands that you toured with, with the Almighty. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll start with the Ramones as we're on yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, that was phenomenal because we just, we all love the Ramones so much. And I'll never forget it. They were really great to us, especially their crew were, were super sweet to us because we were very nervous. And... We were just very much like, you know, watching them every night, but you know, we didn't speak to them the first week. And Johnny's like, "Hey, fuck's up with you guys? Is problem here?" And we're like, "No, what you guys ain't, what you guys ain't talking to us, you know? What, what's your problem?" And we're like, "You know, you're the Ramones, you know? Ah, fuck that, man. Come on, you know." And and then for the last sort of ten days of the tour, it was just, you know, we were hanging out with them the whole time, and they couldn't have been nicer. I mean, we never saw if there was any friction, we never saw any of that. Um, at all and it was CJ Ramon's first tour DD just left the band so it was CJ's CJ's first run I've had CJ on the show as CJ's well and he told me about still, being in still the, friends with CJ now you know an amazing guy an amazing guy yeah. and he was telling me the story about how um, Epitaph really wanted to sign them right because you know everybody thinks of the Ramones as this hugely successful band yeah but in fact, in their lifetime, they really weren't, were no, they? It's no. only sort of posthumously yep. that people Absolutely. have learned to appreciate them. And, you know, yeah. the, the logo is obviously, you know, a synonymous kind of, of fashion icon now. Of but they never made much money off record sales. No. And they had to just hustle for years. Which is their why they life, didn't they? Constantly, you know, and, and cheaply. Yeah, I mean, I think they did. I think they did quite well touring, but they weren't making the money I think that people thought they were making you know, yeah yeah you know. how many songs would they play in a night <laughs> oh it was amazing I think there was like 32, One, two, three, four. 32 in the set and the set was like an hour and 10 minutes long if that you know what I mean incredible yeah it was great that was a, I mean that was one of those tours where somebody said that's it that's all you're getting I'd have gone okay I got the one for the Ramones can't really argue with that but there was plenty more with the very Motorhead next, right the next one was Motorhead and it was like does it get any better you know um and it does, yeah. It was Motorhead, which for me was just the ultimate, you know. And, and they were—they just made a brilliant album, the 1916 album. Yes. So it was a big comeback album for yeah. them. It was a lot yeah, because they sort of dipped, didn't dipped they, for a while? In the late, late 80s, yeah. And they came back really strongly. They had a new record deal, a new album. Lemmy was just, just moved to America. He was looking good. He was enjoying life. And, they were, and you know, they were, they, were, they, were, they were kind of one of their peaks back then. And again, they couldn't have been nicer to us. And, and Lemmy was so gracious and funny and would hang out all the time. And, you know, the crew was wonderful to us. Um, and it was just a great tour for us to be on, you know. I've heard that Lemmy had one of those kind of really sharp wits. Very just dry. one of the funniest days. Didn't suffer fools. Yeah. Very comfortable being Lemmy. Very funny. Very clever. Very educated. Very astute. You know, Um a lot more, I, I think people didn't give him enough credit for that. He was a very clever man, and uh, I just loved him. I just thought he was brilliant. He was so nice to me and sweet to me and, and just great, you know? I can't, I can't say anything else about the guy, you know? Did you cut loose with him? Fuck yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it was mental. <laughs> you know, I've, I've tried to keep up with Lemmy a couple of times, and it's ended in disaster, you know? My favorite Lemmy story that I heard is from a guy who came to pick him up 
uh, I can't remember whether I heard it on a podcast or through a friend of a friend, yeah. but the tour manager came to pick him up for tour yeah. and he opens the door and Lemmy's just there in like underpants t-shirt. And he's like, Lem, like we're going on tour for like three months, man. Like, come on, get ready. And he's like, okay, okay. Puts his trousers on and stuff, walks out the door and the guy's like, Lem, we're going on tour. <laughs> he's like, you need to pack some things. He goes, I got you. Goes back inside, picks up an orange. <laughs> He's like, right, let's go. That that fucking orange. That is brilliant. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you my favorite Lemmer story, and there's been many with them. I'll tell you, I'll try and maybe do a, a shorter version of this. Um, we, we'd done that tour, and then there was a, I used to have a convention every year in the States called the, Con- the Concrete Foundation Forum, and lots of bands would play at it. The Almighty are booked to play it, and so we're Motorhead, and Lem's like, when you get to America, give us a show. We're staying in the same hotel. So I get checked in, just go off the plane, 10-hour flight, jet lag, doesn't matter. You know, Liam's got in touch and said, you know, I'm in this room, left a message reception, come up to the room as soon as you get here. It's not fucking jet lag, you know? And, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is right before the tour with them. This is before we went on tour with them. This is, yeah, it's great. So, so I go up to the room and, and it's brilliant. He opens the door and it's like a scene from a movie. There's just all this smoke and this light behind him, you know, and he's got the fucking tidy tight shorts on and the cowboy hat and it, damn cut off open the chest out and it's just a smoke and aura like like a god you know what I mean I'm like hey Liam he's like come in you know and Phil Campbell's in the room and his room's full of people his girl's there and his you know he says sit down I said I sit down and he goes you alright I'm like oh, yeah, I'm fine he goes, I'm just, he goes I've just got mixing in the new album do you want to hear it and I went I'd love to hear it sorry if this, people don't think it's a very good Lemmy impersonation it's the best <laughs> I think you're doing pretty good so he sits me down he goes hold this and he hands me a pint glass and he fills it three quarters of the way with Jack Daniels and about a quarter of Coca-Cola in it. Two, two or three ice cubes. Three ice cubes. I think it was three. I always remember thinking, three, there's three ice cubes in this. This is really weird, you know? And then he, he racks me out one of the biggest lines of something. Could have been speed. Could have been Coke. Could have been embalming fluid. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but it was a tram line. And he puts his headphones on me and he goes, drink that. Snort that. And listen to that. <laughs> right? So I've got these headphones on. I'm trying to keep up with him. I do I do this line, you know, carnage going on in the room. I'm just going, this is the best day ever. You know, this is fucking great. New Motorhead album's pumping in my ears. It's wonderful. He's topping me up. I think he racks out another line. I do it. I'm out of my mind. I'm listening to Motorhead, hanging with Lemmy and Phil Campbell in his hotel room. The album finishes and Lemmy kind of looks at me, raises the eyebrow, goes, what do you think? And I stand up to tell him what I think. My legs give way. And I fall, I smash the pint glass and throw up at the same time and cut my eye and I'm lying in the carpet and in my sort of own snot and vomit and I can sort of smell this rancid breath and hear this breathing above my left ear and the room spinning and he goes, Warwick, he goes, you're a fucking lightweight. You'll never last the tour. And it's just brilliant. You know? That is class. Glory, you're a fucking lightweight. <laughs> and I was, you know. So that was your initiation into the motorhead yeah, camp. Yeah, you know. And you passed with flying I think colors. I, well, I, think, I think I passed. You know, I think my spectacular ending was not on the cards, but I think he just, they just they thought, you know, I just never remember letting me write my face. Warwick, you're a lightweight. That's fucking incredible. <laughs> How was the um, Donington Monsters of Rock in 92? Was it the year you guys did? It was, yeah. yeah. Iron Maiden, Wasp, Slayer. That was amazing. Um, as I'd been there at a fan only four years earlier, the year that Maiden headlined it with guns on the bill. 
when there was 125,000 people there. I, I, I got the overnight bus down with my girlfriend at the time from Glasgow. This is pre-Almighty, is oh, it even? We just started, just, the, just started the Almighty. Just literally started the Almighty and remember standing there going, I want to be on that stage. Four years later, I'm on that stage. And, you know, it's, 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 and the irony wasn't lost on me. And I knew what a big opportunity it was. I knew it was, it was ours to screw up or it was ours to, to grasp and, and elevate the band. And we just all of us were totally determined. What I remember about it that day, more than anything else, apart from the gig being so great, was it was my, it was my dad's 61st birthday. And my dad's always been a big supporter of, of my music. And I flew him down. And, you know, my dad's this real Ulster man. He came down with a suit and a tie on, dressed impeccably, you know. And he liked, he liked his whiskey, you know. And uh, he arrived and I sort of gave him his pass and showed him where he was. And I think after he drank most of our rider, he ended up in Skid Row's dressing room. <laughs> and I have this image. And Rachel, and Rachel and I are st- still friends this day. Rachel would, would always ask me, ask about my dad right up until he passed away. Him and Rachel, their arms around each other, you know, in a bottle of whiskey, hammered. Hanging out together, you know, and your, your, your dad's way cooler than you, you know, he's the best guy ever, and blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's the best memory I have of that day, I think, you know. That's incredible. Yeah. When you get to share stuff like that with your family, and as you say, you can leave them on their own, yeah. and they can just make all the friends, like outstage yeah. you on the rock scale even. You're well, my like, dad was an incredible class. guy. He just loved it, you know. He, 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 was, he was a very blue-collar, straight-up, you know, everything. There's no grey area with him. He knew where you stood, very honest type kind of guy. But he was very supportive of what I did, and I mean, this is brilliant. When when he he passed away four years ago, and uh, he was cremated, and as he was going into the you know into the crematorium, he wanted free and easy played. Wow! And free and easy was blasting as my dad's coffin's going into the into the flames, you know. And I just like this is, and I'm just I mean I'm a ball, but I'm, I'm I'm laughing. I'm just laughing so much to myself, just going, what a dude, you know, what a guy, you know. Proud what I mean? dad, man. Yeah, it's just brilliant, you know. That tune's amazing as well. Thank you very was much. Was that album produced by Andy Taylor? It certainly was, yes. Duran Duran. Now, yeah. I wouldn't have put him down as the rock guy. Yeah. What made you want to work with him? Well he, well, he is. That's the thing. That's what people don't know about Andy. Obviously, huge in Duran Duran. The Power Station stuff as well, um, which I loved, which is, you know, obviously a bit more rockier. Andy's, Andy's a Geordie, brought up in Lizzie, brought up in DC. When he was 14, 15, he, he went out and toured all the military bases all over Germany. Which is you know kind of like the, what the Beatles were doing in Hamburg. Yeah, but, yeah, know, yeah. So he learned his chops very young, and is phenomenal guitar player and a great singer. And um, he just done uh, Backstreet Symphony for Thunder. Oh, okay. And we loved the production on that record. And so when we were talking about producers for the second album, we were like, you know, we'd really like to get Andy Taylor to do it because we we like what he did with Thunder. They um, were on the bill that year at Donington as were, well, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So that's the reason we got Andy in to do it. And, you know, I'm still friends. I just, I've just written, Andy's about to put a lot of new material out next year and I've, I've co-written about seven songs with him. Nice. So You're a busy man, soon. aren't you? I am a busy you man. You never yeah. stop. I never stop, yeah. There's so many people that I've had on this show that you are clearly good friends with and have worked with as yeah. well. Ginger Wildheart. Of course. Uh, I wanted to chat to you about Andy Cairns yeah. from Therapy. Yeah. A good friend of mine. I love that man. And he, asked, he asked me, well, first of all, he said to say hello. Yep. I spoke to him last night. I was like, I'm speaking oh, to Ricky brilliant. tomorrow. Give me some pointers. <laughs> and he goes, ask him about his birthday in 95 at the Rebel Studios, is it? When yeah. we were recording Infernal Love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we go there? Oh, we can go there. Um, I can't remember a lot about it. Andy's been a really good friend of mine since about 92. Obviously, we're both from Northern Ireland. So, you know, we clicked straight away. Yeah. But obviously, a lot of the same musical tastes. I'm a huge therapy fan. And, you know, 
had a sort of difficult, very difficult year or two in my life, sort of 98, 99, and Andy was very much there for me as a friend and helped me tremendously um, get myself back together and sort myself out, you know, regardless of the music, he was there as a friend and I owe him a lot for that. And, and we've just been great friends, same sense, same sense of humour, you know, same stupidity, same love of bands. So he's, he's a dear friend, but they were recording Infernal Love in Real World Studios, which is Peter, Peter Gabriel's place. I was living in London at the time and uh, they'd take weekends off and Andy would be like, right, weekends off. And I'd jump on the train and, and arrive down on a Friday night and we'd just party for the whole weekend. And I remember one particular birthday, we were just out of our minds and we went in, there was a kitchen you know, with the chefs, it was a living studio, it's a beautiful studio. And we put the chef's gear on <laughs> and thought it would be a good idea to take out these, uh, this canoe into this lake that's there. So we got an old, um, the old tape recorder and we decided we were going to go out and record these ducks <laughs> and write this album called Duck Symphony which was these ducks quacking with these heavy met, real death metal heavy guitars and of course being as out of our minds we were we were deadly serious about this at the time and we got as far as sitting there's a picture of us sitting in the canoe with the tape recorder trying to get these ducks to fucking quack in the tape recorder so we could go back in and start making Duck Symphony which was going to you know blow people's minds you know so there you go. That was one of the stories. <laughs> well, he's, he's given me a few more pointers, but right. we'll come back to them. No after problem. the uh, Donington <laughs> tour, is that how you got the, the Maiden tour after that show? Did they kind of spot you guys and take note then, or did it come through another way? I and how some, did they treat you, and how I, was that I experience? A, it was a bet. I got on Donington. I won a bet with Steve Harris. And Maiden were having... Steve was a big... Steve is and was a big fan of the Almighty and, and, and a great supporter of the band. But... Iron Maiden were having an album launch party or something I can't remember what it was for and the theme was sideshow stalls like circus side like you know throw a ball knock over the coconut darts whatever you have and one of them was a, a football net football goals with a thing down with you've got to kick the ball through the hole and you get so many points for different holes and I'm not a bad I'm not a bad football player so I was doing it with, with, with Steve and Steve's watching me he says right if you get that one in the, in the top corner you're on Donington I went alright Boom, right through. Shook my hand. Rod Smallwood calls up our manager on the Monday. The all night on Donington. So I like to think it was a bet that I got us on Donington. Amazing. You know, yeah, that's a true story. But I, listen, you know, <laughs> I think I think we might have got it anyway because the band was very much on the up and there was a buzz about the band and it just seemed natural that we were the band of that year to be on that bill because yeah. that was our time. But that's officially how I got it. It was, it was a football bet. And I mean, they're just about as high... A level of operators in the entertainment world, not just rock and metal, but yeah. their, their live show and their tours are traveling circuses, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Um, what's it like to get a kind of a you know vantage point from behind the scenes and step into that world? And what do you learn from a band like that? Well, I think you just realize how meticulous it's, it's run, how passionate their fans are. You know, I mean, their fans are just so committed and so loyal. Um, and that was amazing for me to see. And we we built up a good fan base at that point, and we had that as well. But to see it when it's twenty thousand people a night that are that, I was I don't think I've ever seen anything that it was almost like a football game, you know, where you've yeah. got twenty thousand soccer fans so passionate about their team. So that was that blew me away. But again, they couldn't have been nicer to us. They treated us exceptionally well, um, and it was just great. We were, I remember going into that tour when we ended up touring and being very nervous because it was the first tour where I, I kind of thought, I don't know how we're going to go down with our fans because they're so hardcore. Yeah. 
will they even care? Them and ACDC have to be two of the hardest yeah, bands to well, open we, we never played with ACDC. I would love, would have loved to have toured ACDC, but that never happened. But we went down well with Maiden, you know, and really well. So that was an amazing tour for us, and that really catapulted the band, you know, not just in the UK, but in Europe, certainly up a few rungs on the, on the ladder, you know. I mean, there was a period where you guys were absolutely killing in UK and Europe. Did yeah. it ever happen in the States? Did you ever no, try and get well, out there? we tried. There? We did one nine-week tour there. It nearly killed us. You know, we had a lot of action at Rock Radio with, with pretty much the first three albums. Then, you know, the old cliche label problems. Our, our guy would always seem to be getting sacked. We'd built up a rapport. We're about to do something and the guy would be fired and everything would be And you're down at the bottom you'd of the list you'd again. you start again. A new guy would come in. He'd, and by that time, the momentum was all that shit. That happened on all three records. Part tripping, we did a, a nine-week club tour, and you know, outside of the sort of east coast and west coast, the main hubs, it was here we are in the middle of you know Nebraska playing to three people, here we are in Kentucky playing to five people, and it was hard, you know, it was hard because it was we were touring in a van, driving seven eight hundred miles every day, setting up, playing, staying in a crappy Motel Six, yeah, getting up at seven, driving three months, and even when you're in your twenties, that was still hard and you know I, I think it, it nearly at that time it nearly split the band up I think only the success we were having in Europe kept us maybe kept us together you know did you ever tour with any of the grunge bands because Power Tripping was obviously a very grunge influenced album we did did yeah, you ever get on bills with those yeah we toured with Alice in Chains and we did a, a tour with Alice in Chains and Megadeth in 92 right before grunge blew up and Alice in Chains actually opened that tour in the States was this it was or? in the UK in the UK and, and, and Europe and Alice in Chains were first on. We were in the middle and then Megadeth. And it was a brilliant tour. And I remember seeing Alice in Chains and, and, and it just hadn't exploded yet. And I thought they were amazing straight away. Um, I just was like, fuck, this is incredible. You know, this is amazing music. But half the crowd was divided. Half the crowd was really into it. And half the crowd was like, boo, this is rubbish. It's not heavy metal. And it was a really extreme reaction. And usually I found when you have that from a, a crowd, the band's going to be huge. If they right. That much. Yeah, yeah. I the get other that. band I've seen is the Darkness. Oh man. Well, uh, the Wild Hearts took them out, didn't they? Super early on. Yeah, but I, 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 the Def Leppard did as well, and I was solo opening acoustic on that tour, so I was watching the Darkness every night. That's and before they blew up. Is before it? they blew yeah. up on the first EP, and again the crowd was divided. You know, half the crowd's booing. You know, you're what are you? Blah, they blah, think blah, it's blah. a joke. joke. Yeah. And the other half's going, "This is genius," and it's that extreme. Yeah. And I remember saying, "I said they're going to be huge because they're evoking such." A, it's not like. The worst thing is indifference. I mean, eh, they're all right. I mean, that's. I'd rather have somebody throwing shit at me and going, "You suck!" And any kind of reaction, yeah, right? Because that's There's a reaction. Yeah. Passion in that reaction, yeah. whether it's good or bad. Yeah. So anyway, uh, long answer to your question. Yes, we did. Alison Chains. Well, you mentioned your friend Joe Elliott there. Yeah. Uh, did you guys buddy up when you moved to Dublin? Yep. Is that where that friendship began? Straight begins? away, right off the bat. Um, <laughs> I love Joe. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't love Joe? It's his birthday tomorrow as well. Is it really? Yeah, he sick, turns, turns a big 6-0 tomorrow. Amazing. Um, yeah, we met, we were rehearsing with the band Sick I Was In After the Almighty. We rehearsed in a place called The Factory. It was a big rehearsal facility in Dublin. And Bowie was in there rehearsing. And he'd been in there for like six months rehearsing an album. And, and being the amazing guy that he is, uh, sorry, it was, sadly, he decided he wanted to put a gig on and he invited everybody that rehearsed in the factory, the staff, the whole thing, because he had a huge room where he was rehearsing. And obviously Joe, being the Bowie nut that he is, had got an invite. And we just went along and um, my first meeting of Joe was, was pretty, pretty, pretty cool actually. He's at the bar and I go up to get a drink and he touched me, Sean goes, Yo, you're Ricky Ward from the Almighty. 
I was like, fucking Joe Elliott knows who I am. I'm like, you're Joe Elliott from Death Leopard, you know? And I had an, it's just one of those dumb things. I had a couple of XC tablets on me, and I went, do you want an XC tablet? I went, oh, I've never done that before. I said, all right, we'll just do half. So me and him did a half E. As the first, within the first 30 seconds of meeting him, you know? So we're, we're on these half ecstasy tablets, and, and uh, we just start talking. We start talking about football, and he goes, oh, these are rather good. I'm hungry, you know? And we have a great night. That's it. And he says to me, yeah, next is Friday night. There's a game on. Would you like Chinese food? I went, yeah. He says, right, I'll give you a call. Come up Friday night, and we'll watch the game. And I go home and, you know, come down and go to bed and go, I don't know, actually, I just happened. He's never going to phone me. He just said that to be nice. Sure enough, Thursday evening. Right, 7 o'clock, Chinese, here's the address. I go up to Joe's and that was it. You know, friendship's born. And uh, again, he's been such a brilliant friend to me over the years and still is in, in every way. And uh, I always really cherish his advice. You know, if I've got... If I'm second guessing something, I'm not sure. I'll go to Joe with, all, with a lot of the music that I'm involved in, you know, because I really value his opinion, and he'll tell me the truth. Yeah, because he's yeah, straight up like that. Straight up. Did he produce your first solo album? He produced the first two. First two. Yeah. And I think I heard you on the Danko Jones podcast. Another previous guest yeah. on here. All these similarities. Danko's great guy as well. He's a lovely man, yeah. and I think you were talking to him in that about how Joe was the person that really coaxed the singer out of you. And we're sort yes. of saying, you know, you've done the kind of the shouting and the, the wailing with the Almighty and the yeah. big rock stuff. Yeah. I want to hear you sing now. Was he part of that process totally. for you finding your, your voice? That's and- exactly what he said, more or less what you just said to me. You know, I, I'd, I'd moved to Dublin and Sick hadn't really developed into anything. Uh, and I, I took that really bad. I took that really personally, really badly and kind of went into like a downward spiral for about a year and wasn't, wasn't in a good place. And Joel and Andy Cairns and, and another couple of people in Dublin were really amazing to me and giving me the, the, the kick up the backside going, you know, pull yourself together and get yourself out of this rut. So you were you thinking at that point about just walking away from oh, music Oh, I, I had walked away. Yeah. I hadn't picked up a guitar in six, seven months. I, I hated, you know, I talked talk myself into believing that I hated music or I didn't. I just was, I was so done with it and everything that went with it. And yet I'm hanging out with Joe and Joe would be, and Joe's so passionate, you know, and I'm kind of going, well, it's easy for you. You're in one of the biggest bands in the world. I said, I, I'm about to hit 30 and off a record deal, not a management deal, done a publishing deal, and I don't really know what, I, what I'm doing, you know. But Joe kept on at me, he, and, and so did Andy, just saying, you just start writing some songs. And, and Joe said, you know, why don't you pick up an acoustic and just strip it down? And, and that's what I did. And then, you know, as luck would have it, you know, I end, the almighty back catalog gets reverted back to me. I meet a guy in the gym in Dublin who knows it is. He's worked, he works for Peer Music, who's a great publishing company. He cuts me a check for the Almighty Back Catalog, which is you know more money I'd seen in, in two years. And I'm back in the music industry, you know, and, and Joe's like, you got some money? Let's go up to my place. Let's start making a record. And that's what we did. We made Tattoos and Alibis, which was you know a game changer and a life-changing record for me. And Joe was very much, he says, look, you can sing. He says, I know you can sing. He says, you've done the Almighty. He says, people know what that stands for. He said, sing. And that's where Scott Gorham Scott came over and played on that record. So that's how you team out. And that's well, I met Scott before then. Yeah, Scott's wife used to work with my ex-wife at MTV, so I met Scott literally way back nineteen ninety one. Uh, and Scott came over and played on this record, and he heard me singing for the first time. So he's, he'll tell you when he when he, you know, offered me the Lizzie gig. A lot of people, well, that guy from the Almighty, he can't sing. He just shouts. Scott, you know, those people handed from a slower. Scott had heard the solo record and knew exactly what I could do. And the timber in my voice and the whole thing and all that stuff. Yeah. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And, you know, obviously I'm sure you've been asked about this part of the, the journey a hundred times more, but the, the call, the invitation to join that group, yeah. how does that present itself and how do you process that offer? I'm still processing it 10 years <laughs> later. Um, I had somebody sort of told me a heads up that my name had been, been banded about and I was going to get a call from Scott. Now Scott would, I, I would talk to Scott every maybe once a year or something, just, hey, how's it going, everybody well, that kind of thing. And I thought, nah, he's not going to fall and they're going to give it to somebody else. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be a guy's kid, going to be asked to be the singer or anything, is he? And then lo and behold, January morning, I'm at home and the phone goes and it's Scott. And he, here's everybody, and I thought, is he going to ask me the question? And then at the end of the conversation, I'm putting Lizzie back together. I think you'd be the right guy to sing. What do you think? And I just went, I'm in. And zero then, reservations, really, zero doubt. I didn't even think about it. I went, I'm in. And then my head started spinning. And I don't really remember the rest of the conversation. Scott started talking to me about how he wanted to present the band and his vision for this lineup with Finn Lizzie. And I put the phone down. First thing I did was call my wife and she was thrilled. And I said, and then at this point I'm starting to go, but it's Phil, I can't do that. You know, and she just said, she said, look, she said, do it. She says, if it doesn't feel right at any point, just stop. And I went, okay, so that was her. And then the second person I phoned was a guy called Del James, who's a Thin Lizzy fanatic Dell works for Guns N' Roses looks after Ask Axel I know that dude do you know Dell? he's yeah. one of the most fascinating individuals ever Del's I don't Del's know him but yeah. I know of him because he's like a journalist yeah. a filmmaker writer tour manager yeah. like because yeah. wasn't he the guy that he did a short story or something that yeah. they based I, the whole I November wrote, Rain I wrote 
a couple of songs in Soul Destruction with him. Wow. So I've known Del for years. Oh, so he is a multi-talented yeah, individual. Great dude, great friend of mine, Lizzie Nutt. And I knew he would tell me the truth. And I, I told him what had happened. I said, Del, whatever you tell me, I'm going to do. I said, because I so much I trust you because you will know, nobody loves Lizzie more than you that I know. And he just said, you absolutely have to do this. And I went, okay, put the phone down. And then you start going, how am I going to do this? Because like, I'm as a Lizzie nut. It was something, you know, when you're a kid, you dream of singing in your favorite band. That, well, that's, you practice that, doing it, right? That's, that's not, how you envisage yourself yeah, that's learning That's not a reali trippy. reality for me. And I thought, how do I do this? And I thought, I just do this as honestly, respectfully, and as good as I possibly can. What would I want to hear? How would I want to hear those songs? Would I want to hear a different slant on them? I went, no, I'd want to hear those songs as close to the original as they could possibly be. And I said, that's how I'm going to do it. But I said, I'm going to do it respectfully. Because one of the first things I said to Scott was like, do you want me to play bass? Do you want me to be play bass and sing? And he said, no, I don't want to present it that way. He said, out of respect for Phil, he said, I want to present it with you singing and we'll get a bass player. He said, I want it, you know, and I thought that was brilliant. You know, he doesn't want a clone. He doesn't want a guy, you know, with, with dark skin playing the bass. You know, he, Scott was enough to, to, to realize that to respect the songs and respect the legacy and present it in a different way, but still do the music and the songs justice. And I thought that was really, really cool, you know? And took a little bit of the pressure off as well. And how, how was that first rehearsal? Terrifying. Yeah. You know, because I knew it was mine to screw up. I knew there was nobody else auditioning. The gig was mine if I wanted it. So I just had to come in and, and, and be decent in the first rehearsal. Uh, and, and thankfully I was and you know Brian and Scott said that's it we're done not as terrifying as the first gig <laughs> I'll bet <laughs> and you had you had Marco Mendoza right from yeah, we Marco Twisted there. Sister yeah Brian Downey on drums obviously Darren on keyboards Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard and obviously Scotty so it's all those elements as well you're yeah. like you're with an all star legendary lineup of guys and the first gigs Aberdeen Scotland who are going to let you know what yep. they think of you in no uncertain terms. Was it nice to have it in Scotland though? Did that kind of feel at home turf to you or was that not even on your mind? It was, it was just bigger than that. You know, because I think what was on my mind was the next night was Glasgow. Right. And obviously that is home turf having lived there and the almighty yeah. being from there. That was the one I was concerned about the most. And uh, yeah, so Aberdeen, yeah, I mean, I knew, I, knew, I knew the songs inside out. I'd done all my homework. The rehearsals had been great. But I'm just terrified. What are people going to fucking think? Am I going to do it justice? And a mate of mine said to me a great thing. He said to me, he said, no matter what happens, he says, tomorrow, he says, your life's never going to be the same again. Either in a good way or a bad way. And I was kind of like, all right, I think that's a compliment. Cheers, you know. And we started the set with Are You Ready? And we're behind this big kabuki. And ideas we come on in, we play. The kabuki would, would, would drop. We'd come out. Are you ready? And I'm standing beside Scott and my leg's just going like that, like shaking. And he just, he's like, it'll be okay, bud. I wanted to fucking punch him. I wanted to punch him and go, what the fuck have you got me into? I mean, I was that angry. You know, I'm just, he's like, you know, I'm so, I mean, I'm nearly in tears. I'm so nervous. Of course it drops, lights come up and you start. And the, the, the best thing about that tour, which I think is, is brilliant. First three songs, everybody's just sort of, and you can see everybody just going, is this guy any good? Am, am I liking this? Is this what, should I be liking this? Is it okay to like this? 
And by the fourth song, people were suddenly getting into it. By the end of the set, place is going crazy, you know? And it was like that every night because people were seeing it for the first time. But what was great about it was we did Aberdeen and Aberdeen sold out on the day. And there was still three or four shows on the tour that didn't sell out. And I remember the promoter phoning up, Adam Parsons, our manager, going, uh, have you seen these tickets? And Adam's like, well, what's going on? He says, every show sold out after the first show. Because word was out. Because word, you know, the internet had spread. And people vote with their feet. That's yep. the way I look at it. So, you know, that was a testimony to the, to the Lizzie faithful. And, you know, obviously it gave me a real shot in the arm as well, the fact that, you know, people were, were liking it. You know, because that's all you want. You just want people to like it, you know. What was your favourite song to play on guitar and what was your favourite song to sing and were they the same? Um, on that I, first initial tour where you're just fully seeped and immersed yeah, in it. Playing Emerald on guitar is amazing. Um, I, uh, I love singing Jailbreak. It's a great song to sing. I just love that song. I'll never huge. playing that song, ever. That riff, <laughs> that, you know. Uh, when you make the decision to start writing new material, is there ever a thought that you're going to call it Lizzie still? There is, yeah. There is. Yeah. Are people in the camp divided over that? And how do you make the choice to, to no, re- rebrand, as it were, and go with a different name? I think that's, you become, we were victims of the success of the live thing and not really taking a breath because the next person, suddenly you get a bit cocky and you think, right, well, we should write some songs. Yeah. And you're all enjoying it. We're and all you're having a great buzz. Energy's every, flowing. Everybody seems to be loving it. And it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Um, and it's funny because Damon and I were kind of waiting for Scott and Brian to sort of take direction in the songwriting and it never happened. So I kind of looked at Damon and went, look, you're a songwriter in your other band. I'm, I'm a songwriter. Maybe we should get the ball rolling and write a couple of songs and take it to them. So we did. And they loved them. And they just, we just kept writing more songs and giving them to Scott and Brian and they're going, this is great. We end up doing some demos. Um, our management take the demos out, send them out. And there's phenomenal interest, of course there is, because it's the first time Thin Lizzy are going to be making new music in 30 years. And there's eight or nine record deals on the table. Everything's great. We've got studio time booked. We've got Kevin Shirley lined up to produce the record. And then I think the penny drops. Hang on a minute. That we're making a new Lizzie album in 30 years without Phil. This is a step too far. And I think everybody was feeling it. I know I was. I felt like I was under tremendous pressure and I felt like it could go, it could, it could really backfire badly against us because the life thing was going well and, and a lot of people had accepted the life thing. I, my heart's telling me this is wrong. This is the wrong thing to do. This is sacrilege shouldn't be doing this be going here so my head's going your name's going to be on a Thin Lizzy record that's going to be amazing you know so I had that whole conflict going on and then when Scott came in I said look second thoughts I was relieved very relieved and it was absolutely the right decision and at that point it just brought up a couple of things we've been touring fairly constantly for two and a half years Brian at that point you know we we had these songs and I just immediately said we're not wasting these songs. I said to Scott, Let, let's just change our name and record an album so we can put these songs out. Scott's like, killer, I'm in. You know, Damon took a bit of convincing. Damon was like, I don't know if I want to start another band. Because he, we'd, we'd all been through it before. And I quite, but I, I talked Damon into it. Marco was up for it. Brian and Darren were sort of at that point going, we don't really want to start from ground zero. Well, it wasn't ground zero, but you know what I mean? Go through yeah. the whole thing. So they stepped aside. Jimmy DeGrasso comes in. 
a couple of the labels were like, oh, if you're not calling it Thin Lizzy. I was going to ask you that. If you decide to go with a different name, yeah. do all of a sudden those nine offers well, go down to four? The, 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 you, they do. And the main reason we went with Nuclear Blast is Monty Connor, who signed us, was a no Phil, no Lizzy guy. Didn't want to entertain the idea of Lizzy carrying on with another singer. And I get that. I don't have any ill will towards these people at all. I totally understand their point of view and understand why they think that. And that's okay. Monty was in that camp. We sent the demos to, to Mark Palmer at Nuclear Blast here and Mark was blasting them in his office and Monty walked past and stopped and he went, they're the new Thin Lizzy demos, aren't they? And Mark went, yep. He went, really fucking good. <laughs> and bless, and it's a testament to Monty. Monty puts a, an offer in and when we decided, we told the labels to change the name, obviously, like I said, four or five withdrew straight away. Nuclear Blast said, we really love these songs. Obviously, we're not going to offer you as much money as if it were Thin Lizzy, because right, right out of the gate, it would, no matter how it sounded, just because the name's on it, it would, have been, it would have been so much interest. But he said, we, we do want to be involved. And he still made us a really good deal, enough to be able to go and record with Kevin Shirley in the studio we wanted and make all hell breaks loose, which is what we did. You know, so that's how we end up being on Nuclear Blast to this day. That's amazing. Yeah. What a story. And the creativity just hasn't stopped. Like, yeah. pretty much every couple of years, there's been a new album. Um, the two yeah. that followed, who was the producer who made those two? Nick? Nick Maskelinich. I can't get my head around his yeah, surname. Yeah, it's a tricky one to he's, he's like more of a heavy dude, isn't he? Mastodon, Deftones. Yeah, yeah. Alice in Chains. Yeah, Foo um, Fighters. How come he was the guy? Well, we, w we initially wanted to do the second record. Joe was going to produce it. Right. And we were going to do it in Dublin with Joe and Ronan McHugh, who does all the Leopard stuff and, and, and did my solo records. And that was a done deal. Joe, Joe, Joe had come out and met us. We talked about the record. We were all very excited. Leopard were off the road. And then Leopard got a bunch of offers in for, for shows he just couldn't turn down. And Joe was just like, I'm really sorry. You know, I have to go and do these shows. I'm going to have to with withdraw from the album. And we're like, shit, here we're going to get to produce it. And uh, Damon had met, I just moved to Nashville and met Nick Raskolnich at an Iron Maiden gig. And said, look, I'm, I'm pretty friendly with Nick Raskolnich. You know, Grammy winner in the war, but just he said... I don't know if he'll do it. I don't know if he'll do it for the money we have, but I'll ask him. So Damon reached out to Nick and Nick said he was interested but wanted to see us play live as fate would have it. We were on tour. We played Nashville a couple of weeks later. Nick came down to the uh, the show, saw the band, loved the band, agreed to do the record, you know? And at that point, Marco just left as well. So Robbie Crane had just come in and, you know, with this latest album, because it seems to me from the outside looking in, perhaps this is true, that the writing partnership for those first three was pretty much you and Damon, is that safe to say? Yeah. Mainly. Yeah. Um, he's no longer in the group, right? Yeah. So how does that change the writing process for this latest album? It doesn't, you know, and that's no disrespect to Damon, is that I can write songs on my own, and I can finish songs on my own, and I love to do that. But I also love being in a situation where I have an idea, and instead of finishing it, I'll take it to somebody else because I want their input, and I enjoy that. It's the whole collaborative process you, of songwriting. You know what I mean? And I would take various ideas to Damon. Sometimes they were nearly finished and they wouldn't change that much. But Damon and I had this agreement that we just split everything 50-50 because we were so nervous when we started writing with the whole Lizzy thing. We just, it was like, you know, we were just like, okay, me and you'll do it. We'll just... Share well, the burden, we'll, you know, as it were. We'll, exactly, <laughs> well put. So that didn't change. I was still writing a lot of stuff, but I would just take them to Christian. Yeah. Who's a great songwriter. And he's songwriter. from Stone Sour, is that right? Yeah, as well Stone as Dee Yeah. So he, so there was no, it was just all I'm doing is take it to a guy with a different personality and different vibe, but I'm still taking, getting the songs to a point. It was even, I think there's even three and four in this record that 
I just wrote the whole thing while we were waiting to find a guitar player because I had the song. So there's three where it's just me on the record. And, and you got a new drummer on this album as well, right? Yeah, who, who'd been in, been in the band for two years, but this was the first time he recorded an, an album. So the process didn't really change. Christian was great. Scott still brings in his riffs and will we'll give them to me and I'll take them away. And When he comes to you from. with a riff, is it still like, fuck, how does he keep doing it? Is yeah, he one of those he, guys? He doesn't bring in many riffs. I wish he'd bring in more. <laughs> but the ones he brings in... Solid gold every time. Amazing. You know, he brought one in. You know, typical Scotty. is like, we're, you know, I've got all the lyrics written. All the songs are done. They're all demoed. I meet him the night before we start recording. He's like, hey, bud, check this out. And I was like, you're not going to give me a song. We're starting the album tomorrow, mate. You know, please. And he gives me this song, um, which is a finished musical demo. And it's brilliant, you know. And of course... I stay up to three o'clock that night writing the lyric. The song's called Underneath the Afterglow and it makes it on the record and it's a great song, you know. So he brings in quality when he brings in those. They're just, the riffs are just amazing, you know. And what about Jay Rushton? Because he is Steel Panthers guy. Yep. Right? Yeah. Uh, I did a tour with them in February and they're just the funniest they're fucking great. dudes they're in the good, world. They're good dudes. Um, what else has he done aside from them? He's done a lot of Anthrax stuff. Right, right. He's done the Donnas. He's done a lot of pop, oh, wow. done a lot of pop stuff. Mixed a bunch of stuff. Had your time with Nick just kind of run its course? Well, it yeah, we, Jay had mixed both our albums, uh, Killer Instinct and Heavy Fire. He mixed right. them, so I knew him. And he was very keen to produce the band, do the whole thing. And just with the lineup changes and sort of the whole shift in, in, in energy, we just were like, right, we need to, maybe it's time to work with somebody else. New you know, chapter. We've got new yeah. guys coming in, new blood, they bring in a new sound, new attitude. Let's work with Jay. Because Jay, we knew Jay really wanted, and let's record in LA instead of Nashville, um, which we did. And we recorded an amazing studio called Sphere Studios on an old, on the old Motown desk. Really? Yeah, old Neve Motown desk that was in the Motown studio in LA in the seventies. So you, can, all the songs that were recorded on that for me, that was just like a, this, you know, that was a good vibe right out, right, yeah, right man, out the fuck. gate. So we there, we were in there, and Jay's got a, a, a different way of co- recording where he likes to do a song a day, and we'd never recorded that way before. But it really everything from top to bottom. Yeah. So you, you, you drums, bass, guitars, solos, vocals, next song, instead of ten drum tracks, ten bass tracks, ten, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we never worked that way, and it was it worked it worked really well for us. I, um, we were just able to focus. I thought really great on every song. Uh, and I really enjoyed recording that way. And Jay was just amazing to work with. Great, great vibe. Really chilled. I had an amazing time. I mean, I've, I've said this, and I'll go on record saying this. I've been blessed to be making records for thirty years. That's the best time I've ever had making a record in my life. You know, it was so much fun. Rock Didn't want it to end. You know. Yeah. Fucking a man. Yeah. Uh, are you still living in LA? Is LA yeah, still yeah, home? Fifteen years. How you finding it? Hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good and bad. Yes. Uh, you know. Uh, you got kids as well, right? Got you got kids, family, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I live in a very nice part of Los Angeles. The weather's beautiful. My kids go to a great school. I, I feel my family's very safe where we are. As a, as a, as a you know, a husband and a father and a family man, you can't really ask for much more than that, you know. So that's the main things for me. I could live anywhere as long as I have that criteria, you know. This is an airport, you know. I mean, it's just nice to see the kids. I've got great opportunities. Certainly, opportunities that I never had when I was a a kid so it's nice nice for them you know how old are they uh, my youngest is about to turn 12 my eldest is 22 um, and she's in Berlin and, nice uh, great already, city great city already off is she an artist or a musician or she's not no she's she's still at university she's doing media studies right, and right. I have two stepchildren I have a 19 year old daughter that still lives with us who is an artist who's an amazing artist 
uh, and doing really well. And then I have a stepson who's who's in Vegas and he works as a lifeguard at one of the casinos down Really? There. Yeah. Yeah. So I've just got the two girls at home right now, the twelve year old and the nineteen year old. So you got your hands full, man. And still yeah. you find all this time to yep. write and record well, and are you doing solo stuff still as well? Yeah, so I've I've just I solo album's done. Right. It's recorded. What number is this? Five? This will be solo album number five. Um I did it with Keith Nelson. Keith used to be in Buckcherry. Keith produced it and co wrote it with me. Uh, full band album. I had Keith myself keeping myself playing guitar. Xavier used to be a drummer in Buckcherry playing drums and, and Robert Crane from Black Star Riders playing bass on it. So it's done, it's in the can, sitting waiting on it. Uh, as soon as the Black Star Riders is done with this, I will put it out. So it probably won't come out till 2021 because I'd like to tour it a little bit as well. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, I just like, I'm blessed to be able to do what I do. The ideas keep coming. The inspiration Does the well never coming. run dry? That, that's to. a lucky situation, right? Doesn't Some people to. find that. I think, <laughs> I just think there's so much going on the in the writer's world. block can yeah. come from out of nowhere and then. But yeah, I guess I guess yeah. if you're someone who's you know comes from that school of punk, perhaps even yeah. though the sound isn't necessarily always that, yeah, it's a reaction to the world around you, right? And yeah, it is, and there's just so much stuff going on, and and I just never seem to be stuck for stuff to write about. I mean, I may have written about the same subject a couple of times, but I think after thirty years, you're allowed to do that as long yeah. as it's different each time. But uh, I just love it. I just enjoy what I do immensely, and it's a job, and I treat it like a job. I mean, I treat it with the respect that I think it deserves. Like I get up in the morning when I'm home at 6.30, get the kids out the door, go to the gym for an hour and a half. I'll get a lot of ideas when I'm in the gym, come back, pick up the guitar, know I've got that four hour window until the kids come home from school and then, you know, then it's chaos, you know, dinner time and homework. And But I've got that four hour window and that's what I do every day, four or five hours. And I'll be, you know, like everybody else, I'll be doing messages in that time going, you know, picking groceries up or, stuff for my wife because my wife works full time as well but we just make it work you know That's do you still cut loose on the road or no. do you live a cleaner saner life these pretty, days pretty I'm pretty clean and boring these days yeah you know? I like to I like to you've had your fun I like to smoke a, I like to it. smoke a little bit of weed now and again you know just to take the edge off I like I like the odd beer now and again but yeah compared to what I used to be like <laughs> and because we still tour so much yeah you want you know, to be I, on I point. want to look after myself and I want to enjoy it and I want to be fit and I want to be healthy and I don't want to lose my voice I'm very conscious of that um, because if you're hungover or you feel like shit or you're sick you're not enjoying it and then what's the point in doing it you're letting yourself down you're letting down all the people that paid the money to come and see you and it works for me everybody's different but I've got a regime that I feel works really well for me and I, I like to stick to it you know Tell me about touring with Pantera as we approach the end of the conversation. Did yeah. you do seven weeks? We did in Europe. At what year? 94. Wow. Vulgar display of power. Fuck. So they're just on fire at that point. Yeah. You know, that was a weird tour, sadly, for us. One of the one tours that I thought was going to be amazing and looking forward to it so much. And it wasn't. We'd met those guys very. We did a show together in New York City when Cowboys from Hell came out. Right before they would, they'd taken off and before we were, we played the Cat Club in New York together and we'd become friends and I'd hung out with Phil when he'd been in London a couple of times as a mate, come to the shows and we'd gone to see, I think we went to see Megadeth together one night. So we're like, great, we're going on tour with our friends and when the tour started, they were very standoffish and in seven weeks we didn't get one sound check. And we weren't, we were just, we were treated very much like the British band. Because Downset were on that tour as well. They were first on, we were in the middle in Pantera. And Phil was great. And, and, and just, and just Vinny was very, 
aloof and it wasn't sort of till later I think that there was a lot of problems in the camp I think that's when a lot of the problems had started for them so I think they were dealing with a lot of stuff so maybe we read more into it and took it personally when it maybe maybe it wasn't but just we'd been used to being on tour with bands that have been amazing to us yeah and treated you really so maybe well. we were expecting too much because we've been spoiled before so looking back maybe it was it was just us that overreacted but I didn't. I never felt like we were very welcome on that tour. We went down great. We went down okay, you know, because we, we, we just put out Crank, which was a heavy as fuck album. So we went down fine in the shows, but it was just a strange tour, and I just came off and going, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I couldn't quite say why, you know. And and it's funny, and I saw Vinny about 10 days before he passed. We played in Vegas with Judas Priest at a festival, Black Star Riders. And I went out in the crowd to watch Priest and, and I looked over on my left and Vinny was just standing there and I went over and shook his hand and said, hey Vin, I haven't seen you in a while and, you know, how you doing? And he was like, cool, and that was it. And, you know, 10 days later, the poor guy's dead, you know. It's so, such a shocking Yeah. But tragic it was just a, it was just a weird tour, you know. It was one of those tours where I'd like to say it was everything I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't, you know. Did something happen in Brixton backstage, though? Andy Cairns. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the reason. You've just reminded me of it. I don't know if it was. Me and Andy had been out in a rip all day. And Andy was on form. And we went backstage in to see Phil. And Phil kind of had his entourage and, and all that. And don't, Phil, Phil's never been nothing but, but a great guy to me. And, and I've always got all of him great. But Andy just took over the room. And I was just even sitting going, fuck's sake, Andy. Like, he was just on fire being Andy Cairns and having this whole room in the palm of his hand. And these guys were just like... I think they were kind of frightened of him because here's this Irish guy in full flow, you know, just jumping around the room, cracking jokes, not taking any shit, blah, blah, blah. And he, everybody was just kind of, I mean, I was, I was kind of going, I mean, I was just dying with laughter, you know. And I think they didn't really know what had hit them. I think they'd never seen anything like it in their life. They thought, is this guy a terrorist? What's he going to do, you know? you know? And it was just Andy Cairns being Andy on total form you know so maybe that maybe that's why we get treated a bit weird there you go I'd forgotten He's about to blame that for everything I'd forgotten about that you know Ricky man have you got a book out no you need to do a no, book thank man. you I'm going to do is it oh, something I, you thought about doing I have but there's a whole lot of stories I think still to, still to put in it I think I think I'm thankfully I'm still making them so I think the books I'll put the book on hold from hopefully another 10 years that's going to be one hell of a you read know. though yeah thank you no there's a lot of good stuff in there you know I'm quite proud of um, I always talk about the carnage that we created with the almighty and we wear off the scale and, 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 and sick and a lot of stuff I've done it was always very creative and none of it was we always were very respectful of people and, and places and, and we weren't dicks it wasn't like the dirt no we weren't just yeah. dicks we, we, we were we certainly had a lot of fun I had a lot of carnage but it was very respectful, creative carnage. I'm very, very proud of that <laughs> fact. Is there, if there is such a thing, and there is. There we definitely did, is. Because we did it, you know. Uh, my final question, mate, is yeah. tomorrow in here, I'm chatting to your old friend, Justin Sullivan. <sighs> and you guys played in Berlin with Bowie, right? Was yeah. that when you were in the band yes. for that brief stint? that was my stint? second show. That was your second show with yeah. New Model Army. Yeah. First, obviously, proper band you're in. Yeah. Yeah, first Tell day, us about that, day. and then we'll we'll end on on that. You know, experience. I was in a little punk band, and New Model Army's um, management were interested in us taking us on, and they gave us some dates for New Model Army. Justin found out I was a huge fan of New Model Army, asked me up on stage to play on a couple of songs that he felt needed an extra guitar on. One was Master Race off Ghost of Kane, and one was Fifty First Date. And I guess he liked me. I was in awe of them. They had a world tour coming up. They needed an extra musician. 
I got asked to do it, no brainer. And that's it. And I'm still, I was texting with Justin last week because he sent me the new album. So which good. I, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah. And I text him back and talk to him, which tell him, tell me, tell him, I've sent him the Black Star Writers one. He hasn't, he hasn't replied really? yet. I'll so call him up on call that. Call him up on that. <laughs> but he's been a friend and a mentor ever since. And I learned so, I was only in that band for a year, but I learned so much about stagecraft, songwriting, attitude, standing up for yourself, believing in yourself, not playing the game, getting things done in your terms from that guy in those 12 months. And, and, and I really learned so much from him. So I'm always indebted to him. Always loved the band. I think the band are phenomenal. I think he's a very underrated songwriter, criminally underrated songwriter. But, you know, he's just fantastic. And like I said, the new album's amazing. Yeah. And with Bowie in Berlin. Oh, yes. Just to Sorry, end on that. Second gig, yeah. Good. So yeah, yeah. I fly over. The first gig's Hamburg Docks, which is a great gig, and it's, it's amazing. And the second gig's 85,000 people in Berlin in 85. front of the Reichstag. And the wall's still up. The wall's still behind the, you know, so there's people on the other side of the wall going crazy as well. Surreal. Absolutely surreal. Boy walks in the dressing room. You know, you know. Two weeks later, I'm, I was feeding chickens on my dad. Earlier, I was feeding chickens on my dad's farm. You know, and here I am. You know, and it's just mind blowing. It was, it was great. And like I said, I, I was only in the band for a year, but I, I had a great time. It was really, it was, it was amazing. The start of an amazing story that's still yeah. very much in full effect, my friend. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Oh, mate, it was brilliant. Cheers. Thank Loved you it. So much. I'm going to have a little bit of lunch, and then I'm going to chat to your boy Scott. Yeah, that, look forward <laughs> to that. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.